Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And Happy New Year, Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 7th, 2016. My phone continues ringing off the hook this week as I'm being called by attorneys across the country seeking guidance on rescission. For eight years, I've been telling people how simple it is, and yet it seems to confound many attorneys and judges, I guess because it's counterintuitive. But the wording is clear, and that's what the Supreme Court said. It seems like everyone is reading the same menu with one choice on the menu and then trying to order something that is not on the menu. And judges are ignoring the menu entirely by issuing rulings in favor of an imaginary plaintiff in an imaginary lawsuit. Tonight we are covering the topic of whether we can interpret, argue, or philosophize about TILA rescission. The answer is yes provided it is outside the courtroom? The answer is no, if you are inside the courtroom. Just read the statute and follow it. But the banks are betting they can change things, not only by controlling the government, but by changing it. They want judges to rewrite legislation. And the fact that this violates the premier feature of the United States Constitution regarding separation of powers, where only the legislature passes laws, does not seem to bother many judges or lawyers. Well, here's the bulletin. The banks are running the clock to get as many foreclosures done as possible before the rescission issue is put to bed again by the United States Supreme Court. But this time, I don't think it will be so many years getting there. We will also be covering recordation, recording of the notice of rescission under state law. And the imaginary point of argument about the TILA rescission provision that says that the right to rescind expires after three years from the date of consummation. Let me just say that when the Supreme Court of the United States, sometimes referred to as SCOTUS, says there is no room for argument or discussion, that's the end of the matter, because SCOTUS is the court of last resort. There is nothing to revisit in a lower court except correcting their prior unlawful decisions that ignored the rescissions that were sent. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, 
and lending lies. You'll hear about that uh, later in the quarter. Amgar and the Garfield firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show and the blog have value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And if you're looking for active assistance, then you can still call our numbers and schedule a consult, review, or both. And you can get a report, a full report on title and securitization through us, along with a commentary on how it applies to your case, subject to review by your attorney. Living Lies, with 11 million visits, is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and even student loans. Our mission is to share as much free information as we can to help homeowners and other consumers who find that in addition to the house or car or TV they bought, they also purchased a very complicated financial product. And we are succeeding as more and more lawyers across the country smell blood in the water and realize that there is a winning strategy for both damages and equitable relief in both foreclosure defense and rescission. There is gold in all those so-called bank errors that I have said from the beginning were intentional. I know how they work. Long ago, I was on Wall Street and was one of them. Let me remind my listeners here that nothing stops a foreclosure procedure, nothing stops a foreclosure sale except a court order. No letter, pleading, or anything else will stop the foreclosure from proceeding or stop the forced sale of the property. In bankruptcy, the order is automatically issued as soon as the bankruptcy is filed. That's the court order. And the same thing applies to rescissions, except that it is reversed. The court is not allowed, which means it is violating the law if it tries to do it. To, the court is not allowed to ignore a rescission. The rescission is a legal document effective by operation of law, exactly the same as a court order. The court may not rule on foreclosures without going step by step through the TILA rescission rescission statute once it has notice of the rescission by the homeowner. If the court wants to proceed without the rescission, the court must vacate the rescission. In order to vacate the rescission, there must be a claim filed by a real creditor seeking to vacate it. The current trend of judges ignoring TILA rescission after being given notice of it is incredibly wrong, especially in the light of the Jesenowski decision, which said they can't do that. So if the court ignores the rescission, it is identical to a layperson ignoring a direct order from the court. The judges wouldn't like that, but too many judges, especially in the state court levels, think that they are 
free from control of the Supreme Court of the United States. They're not. There is nothing in the Teal of Rescission statute or the Jesenowski decision that says courts can either follow the statute or not in their own discretion. That does not exist. SCOTUS has literally laid down the law, and, the, and these stories I am hearing about judges ignoring rescissions and, and uh, reserving ruling and all kinds of things to avoid the consequence of rescission is opening the door for all kinds of repercussions on those judges. They may not realize it now, but it's coming. And let re me remind you that it is my opinion that rescissions should be recorded in the title chain of the property, since you are most likely never to get a voluntary release of the encumbrance from anyone, the only thing you can do to create a problem with title for them, if they illegally or improperly proceed with a foreclosure judgment or sale, is to have your rescission in the public records. That may be done, as it is in Florida, as a notice of interest in real property. In other states, uh, there are varying uh, requirements for recording a document, and you have to uh, apply state law, just like the state judges have to apply federal law in the case of rescission. They, uh, the banks are then forced to put up or shut up, and those lawsuits to vacate the rescission are either filed or waived if not filed within 20 days of receipt of the notice of rescission. The rescission is effective by operation of law when it is mailed, but the world doesn't know about it until it is recorded in the public records where deeds and mortgages are recorded. Listeners may be reminded of our show last month with Bill Padalo and Kimberly Cromwell. Padalo, in his own case, won on a motion to dismiss relating to the rescission. The trial court, and this isn't me theorizing, denied the motion to dismiss filed by Chase and said that the Supreme Court had spoken giving recognition to the fact that the Supreme Court was the highest court in the land and the court of last resort, and therefore final, and that the rescission was effective when mailed, and that Padalo had successfully converted his loan from secured to unsecured, assuming there was an actual loan. And this brave judge confronted the hypothesis that the whole world will collapse if borrowers win. The court said, although, and I'm quoting the court now, foreclosing trustees and purchasers at trustee sales, this was in a deed of trust state, have a significant interest in finality, consumers have a countervailing interest in avoiding wrongful foreclosure. Jesenowski, I'm still quoting from the court, revealed the majority of federal courts had misinterpreted the will of the enacting Congress. And that can be found at 511 U.S. 313-012 in allocating to borrowers the burden to go to court to enforce their statutory rescission rights under TILA, the Truth in Lending Act. Borrowers do not have to go to court. Borrowers do not have to tender anything. Borrowers need only mail a letter. 
without a lawyer and without a judge, and the rescission is effective. It's probably not perfected until it is recorded, though. That's my opinion. I don't know uh, in your individual states, lawyers and pro se people who are listening, uh, how that would necessarily work. Uh, but if there's a pending court case involving foreclosure, I would give notice of it to the court and uh, uh, to the extent that it is possible to do so uh, with the appropriate document attaching the rescission. Um, uh, it is my opinion that you are effectively taking the first step to quieting title by recording the rescission. The issue now was whether the trial courts could continue pretending the Teeler rescission statute didn't mean what it said and whether trial courts could ignore the order from the highest court in the land that said everyone got it all wrong, except me, of course. In Jessenowski versus Countrywide, a unanimous Supreme Court decision Justice Scalia basically said to the thousands of judges who had changed the wording of the statute to suit their own sense of what's fair and right, that they had no right to do any of that. And that was a year ago, almost to the day today. And somebody had to be first, and it looks like Pavlo was the first case with a published decision. So... The issue before the court was not whether the rescission was effective, but what additional relief Padalo was entitled to get. So let's review the bidding here. First, the Teal rescission statute states clearly that the notice of rescission is effective upon mailing. I keep repeating that because people seem to gloss over that and go somewhere else. It's effective upon mailing, period, end of sentence. There's nothing else to talk about. That rescission notice triggers three duties from the so-called lender or creditor, and this is where it gets interesting. First, they have to send back the canceled note. Well, we already know they know how to fabricate those from machines that look like they were the original, even though uh, Catherine M. Porter found that something like half of all the notes were intentionally destroyed. Second, they have to file a release of the encumbrance, which they're obviously never going to do, which is why I'm telling you to record the rescission. And third, they have to pay back all the money that was paid by the borrower and all the money, uh, uh, they have to pay all the money to the borrower that was paid to third parties as fees arising out of the origination of the loan or compensation. Any other interpretation is not permitted, according to the unanimous decision in Jessenowski from the highest court in the land, the court of last resort, and it's final. There's no room for discussion because that court, the Supreme Court, said there's no room for discussion. There's no room for interpretation. It's interesting because, first of all, no bank or servicer is going to admit that it is a lender responsible for fulfilling those, those duties. Watch how they backpedal suddenly when things go against them, which they will. It means that they're going to have to deny that they actually have standing. 
and no bank or servicer is going to admit that it is a lender responsible for paying all that money to the borrower, which means, again, that they are going to deny standing in one form or another once they know that they've exhausted all possible loopholes in TILA rescission. Get it? It's all about procedure and jurisdiction, which is why you need lawyers to do this, because when pro se people try to do it on their own, they usually screw it up, because this involves the kind of education that lawyers get in law school. Second, the statute, 15 U.S.C. 1635, doubles down on that by not making a distinction between rescissions that are right and rescissions that are wrong. Or, as Justice Scalia said in the Supreme Court decision, the statute does not make any distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. Third, and this is the key point that makes all this worthwhile, if a creditor feels aggrieved by the loss of finance charges, the loss of the note, and the loss of the mortgage encumbrance, all of which are voided by the mailing of the notice in the U.S. Postal Service, mailing the notice of rescission, if such a creditor exists, all they need to do is file a complaint in which it would appear they need to allege six things. They allege standing and describe their standing without reference to the note and mortgage, which are void. In other words, a real creditor with real money in the game steps up and files the lawsuit. Second, they allege the rescission was sent rendering the loan contract, note, and mortgage void. They can't ask for it to be vacated if they're not alleging that the rescission rendered the contract note and mortgage void, which deprives them of the security instrument they had, but which is now void by virtue of the rescission being effective as a matter of law when mailed. Third, they have to allege that sending the notice of rescission was wrongful or unlawful because of any number of reasons, possibly including, for example, the three-year statute of limitations in which case they would have to allege the date of consummation, which would be the date that this creditor or its predecessor funded the loan, paid for the loan, put money on the table for the loan. A contract is not consummated without three elements all complete, offer, acceptance, and consideration from both parties. These closings, nearly all of them, did not have consideration from the same people that did the offer and acceptance. And that's what has confused everybody in the marketplace. Fourth, they would have to demand that the rescission be vacated. Fifth, they would, they would have to demand that the loan contract, note, and mortgage be reinstated, thus admitting that, again, for the second time, that they do not legally exist at the time of the lawsuit. And sixth, they would have to allege how they are being harmed and in what amount. So they might also demand attorney's fees or even sanctions if the rescission was wrongful. Of course, none of those lawsuits have ever been filed because they don't have a creditor with standing. 
and they can't file this, these suits because in addition to having no standing, they've already blown the 20 days. And they have to do all this without reference to the note or mortgage which are void by their own allegations and, and admissions and void because the TILA statute says they are void and void because Reg Z says they are void and void because SCOTUS says they are void. The mistake most lawyers and judges are making is that they are imagining that such a lawsuit was brought by an imaginary party withstanding, a party who has an economic stake in the alleged loan. They are compounding the error by assuming that the consummation date is the same date that papers were signed by the homeowners. This very often is not true. In many cases, perhaps most, they wait the three days uh, uh, for the three-day rescission before releasing the funds. In fact, most loans were never consummated contractually because there was no meeting at which the same two parties, borrower and lender, exchanged offer and acceptance and mutual consideration. And the fact that there was no consummation leads to the same relief as the rescission itself, or nearly the same. And they further compound their error by assuming that these issues of fact would be resolved in favor of the alleged creditor. So you have an imaginary creditor being an imaginary plaintiff in an imaginary lawsuit, and we've got judges ruling as though they all exist. We all know that's wrong, because if the transactions actually occurred, there would have been no need to fabricate and forge and robo-sign all these documents for so many years. In short, they are imagining a lawsuit that does not exist and which must exist in order to vacate the rescission. And believe me, if the naysayers were right, we would have seen thousands of such lawsuits filed delivering a fatal blow to the homes and hopes of homeowners. But no such lawsuits exist. Instead, the pretender lenders send letters or file motions saying that the rescission is more than three years from consummation or taking other issues of fact, glossing over the fact that they must allege and prove the date of consummation they must allege and prove whatever other grounds they're citing, saying that the rescission was wrongful, and they must have a court hear the evidence and have the court enter a judgment vacating the rescission and reinstating the note and mortgage. They obviously can't do this because their, their owners, uh, the actual owners of the debt, don't know that they are the owners of the debt. Those are the investors on Wall Street who don't want to know what happened, what really happened to their money. And they don't want to admit it because they would also have to admit that the value of their bonds in their managed portfolio were probably worthless. They either own the bonds or they own the debt, but not both. Despite all the thousands of decisions saying I was wrong, the Supreme Court's announcement in Jesenowski one year ago showed I was right. And I'm telling you, I'm right now, without any question in my mind, there is no other way to look at this after the Supreme, what the Supreme Court said in Jesenowski. So when I tell you that it doesn't matter whether the rescission is theoretically wrongful, 
I'm back in the same boat fighting with the people who are basically crying, say it isn't so. It is so. A wrongful rescission is still effective until it is declared vacated by a court of law. I read, reviewed, and rejected everything that was written by the naysayers. I stuck to my guns despite having periods where I wondered if it mattered what I said. And now, after enduring eight years of attacks, I feel like it was worth it because the tables have turned even if once again lawyers and judges continue to resist the only path allowed by Teela rescission. So those of you who have followed me since 2007 know that I have said two things repeatedly and that most of my esteemed colleagues said I was on the fringe of legal theory and basically not credible. In their view, it was just not possible that rescission could ever work the way the statute said because that would put all loan closings in a gray area. They backed up their argument with the established legal precedent that finality in a transaction is the key element in having a stable economy. So they said, if I'm right, the entire economy would come tumbling down. And of course, there is the issue of how could they sell, continue to sell, or bundle loans when all the loans could vanish by dropping a notice of rescission in the mail, canceling the note and mortgage. The two things that I have always harped on was that rescission levels the playing field. That was my discovery in 2007 when I looked at the Teela statute with Brad Kaiser. We realized that rescission is the thing that levels the playing field and that there's a lot of money in bringing wrongful foreclosures and a lot of money in bringing actions to enforce rescissions to quiet title by getting rid of the encumbrance on record and the lesser understood but very related actions for disgorgement of all money paid by the homeowner to entities that neither owned the debt nor had any right to collect for the owner of the debt. You may think that that servicer is a servicer, but they're not a servicer if their superior, the trust, doesn't own the loan. They're nothing. Same as the trust. Lawyers have been missing the opportunity of a lifetime on this for over a decade, but now it sounds from what I'm getting by phone that they're starting to pick up on it. Thousands of judges and hundreds of thousands of decisions all refused relief to homeowners who were playing by the rules and found for the banks who never played by the rules and never intended to play by the rules. In other words, they all said I was wrong. Some even named some judges even named me in their decisions and attempted to ridicule me. Rescissions still come in all types of flavors because of the three-year statute of limitations and other limitations on bringing an action to enforce TILA. What people are confusing is that the action to enforce a TILA rescission is not an action to make it effective. That's already done. So if you have a loan in January of 2015 and you send a notice of rescission out, there's no doubt that it's effective by operation of law. And under all circumstances, there's, there's no doubt that um, a, a petition to vacate it 
will fail unless they can prove that all of the disclosures were adequate. That doesn't mean that a real creditor could not file a hypothetical lawsuit and prove that they had given the right disclosures at the right time. But in the absence of such a lawsuit, within 20 days from the date of receipt, there is a potential claim for vacating the rescission, but it will be dismissed if the homeowner moves to dismiss on the basis of the 20-day window in which to file that lawsuit. People ask me, how do you know know about the 20 days? Because if it was any other way, the rescission would not be effective when mailed. Just think about it. I'm running out of time here. We're going to have uh, guests the next three weeks. And welcome back, and Happy New Year to everybody. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.